Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome the CEO of OutThinker, Kyan Kippendorf. He's a best-selling author of various books, including two of my favorites, OutThink the Competition. And even though, as many of you know, I'm a big proponent of co-created growth, his latest book, Driving Innovation from Within, is spot on. So, Kyan, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me here, Dean. Great to be here. I, um, I'm not sure where to start with you. You and I cross a lot of parallel paths. And as you know, I have a, a specific bias to uh, large companies and how you and I help them uh, kind of grow either at Kellogg or in your teaching or in consulting or in, in book writing. And uh, so my you know, bias has always been there. We call them BFSs, big, fat, slow corporation. These traditional companies, many of them think they're they're dead. They just don't know it. But what we do is kind of help them reboot their their uh, their growth and innovation. And um, so I just want to kind of get you know give the audience a little opening of you know you the two books I think are most appropriate. There's you know I'm thinking the competition, which you're probably rebooting again, um, given mm-hmm. where we are today, and and driving innovation from within um, even more poignant these these days. Um, one of the things you mentioned there is. You did a lot of analysis, I think, for both books, really. And you've said, well, of all the companies I looked at, there's really 13 of them that I view as innovative. And I think that's I think that's honestly fascinating. So uh, tell us about yeah. that. You know, so I looked at companies that appear on most innovative lists um, from Fast Company and Forbes. And I looked at who came, who appeared multiple times over five years. Because I think right. innovative, I, I, I choose to define innovative as uh it's recognized as something fresh and new. It's adopted, and that adoption is valuable. Kind of, you know, uh, Steve Jobs said, "Innovation is creativity that ships. If it doesn't ship, could we? Can we really call it innovative? We can call it oh, new." But so I looked at companies that um, are considered innovative, and then I measured do they outperform their competition? And I looked at four metrics, but things like, do they grow faster? Do they have higher EBITDA margins? Do they have higher total return to shareholder? And I said, look, if you really are innovative and your innovations are making it into the market and creating value, you should outperform across at least two of those dimensions. And only 13 companies of 367 meet that criteria. Um, so it's not that I'm saying I think they're innovative. What I'm saying is people think they're innovative, and of the, the the companies that people think are innovative, these are the only ones that are proven to outperform their peers over an extended period of time, in this case, five years. And you brought up a good point there. It's like, is there value, and are people buying it? One of the first things I teach students is there's a difference between an invention and innovation, and they're, okay, I get it. I'm like, that's not enough. And then there's business innovation, which means there is value. People are willing to pay for it at a return that you can actually make money at. So that so it sounds like you really drill down into, hey, you might be, you know, coming up with some cool ideas, but is it really driving core business innovation? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just curious. Um, a little topical here, but just do you think COVID has really been a wake-up call to a lot of these big companies in terms of them turning on their agility button and you know cranking up their ability to adapt, which has always been one of the issues. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I hope so. I think that large companies are benefiting from COVID 
uh, to a greater extent than small companies are. So I think a lot of them are seeing that post-COVID, you know, Walmart's still open, but all the small and mom and pop stores around Walmart have been sh- have been shuttered. So large companies, if they play it right, they're seeing this as an opportunity to steal market share. And they know that they uh, either have to be more innovative and agile, or there is a greater opportunity now to be more innovative and agile. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and speaking of retail, we've noticed uh, through the Revive uh, index that, you know, during the pandemic, both Walmart and Amazon and others, let's take those two as a core, became more of a utilitarian play. It's like people needed that down at the bottom of the, you know, Maslow hierarchy of needs. Right. And right. a lot of consumers shifted their behavior. They shifted their brands to what the heck was available. And um, there's a lot of clawing out of that right now going on. People did what they call consolidated shopping, where they make fewer trips. And now there's stores and brands and clients like yours that are trying to get these consumers to come back to their brands and come back to their physical store. Um, What do you think about that in terms of their ability to adapt? Yeah, I think it all depends on shopping behavior and human behavior. And I think that at some point people will want a physical experience, but this is a great time for us to experiment. And uh, some industries like banking, they've been wanting to close their branches for a long time, and this is a perfect excuse for them to do it. So uh, hopefully if smart companies will say, hey, we shouldn't open our stores, we shouldn't bring people back. This accelerates to the state that we knew we should have been in maybe five years from now, but now we're here this year. What's that? So when you're looking at rebooting companies, um, what's the difference between a thinker and an outthinker? So there's a concept that kind of my work is rooted on, which I call the fourth option, which is if you look at great innovators from modern, you know, Elon Musk's or uh, Bill Gates or Gandhi, you know, they all look for this thing that I call a fourth option. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So his strategy was to do things that his enemy, in this case, uh, um, the, the colonial Britain, uh, would ignore and laugh at. Um, and so this is that that's disruptive innovation. That's blue ocean. Sun Tzu, the Chinese general wrote the art of war. He called it taking whole. It's just one strategic concept. And so what we're looking for are people who have the ability to see when others have stopped thinking mm-hmm. and then they think of a new option, a fourth option. And the way to do that, I think, is that you know, or kind of my, my the, the the root of my work is the idea that language are tools that change how we think, and so the way to outthink is to adopt the new language that allows you to see things differently. So I can give you you know tons of examples, but in in sports, yeah. in technology, in business, uh, the people who adopt the emerging language earlier, they think differently, they see fourth options, and they get ahead. So it's kind of like plan D, fourth. Why is it the fourth? Ah, well, when I was at McKinsey, they trained me to break everything down into threes, you know, threes and three sets of threes. And three just symbolizes the point at which you sit back and you think, okay, we've got enough options. Let's choose between the options. At that moment, you've stopped looking for new options. So it's symbolic of the fourth option beyond that. And and hopefully it's a Venn diagram. So it's that that connected tissue in between all these options is sometimes where there's interesting things to discover. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, when I when I apply my strategic methodology, it's a little bit like dot painting. You come up with a whole bunch of different <laughs> innovations, and then you see a picture emerge from it, and it looks well designed in in you know looking back twenty twenty, but actually it's a 
uh, uh, putting together a Frankenstein of a whole bunch of ideas that then we call one thing. Yes, I've, I've built some Frankenstein products I've before. Wasn't yeah. very proud of them when we were done. <laughs> you know, dot, what happened to those uh, paint by color dot things? Those are so cool. I'm sure yeah, they're on, a... sure they're out there somewhere. But um, so, as you know, I, I focus a lot on co-creation, dancing with startups, bringing employees into the mix of the global ecosystem in order to grow and innovate and not just from within, so to speak. Um, Tell us about the concept of from within, and and of course you've got to start with your people, right? Have a lot of companies like forgotten that? It seems so intuitive. Yeah, yeah I think that the easy solution to innovating from within is to create and to isolate a group and fund it and carve it out and protect it. Mm -hmm. uh, the you know, and that's kind of the way to get started. But I think that we have evolved now to a stage where, okay, we've done that. We put on the Band-Aid. Now we can solve the real problem. And that really is activating innovation across broadly across your 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 company. One of your um, f former colleagues, Rob Walcott, you know, he describes these four different approaches. You can either have um, a lot of money with a few people and do a kind of Google X kind of thing, or you can have very little money, but for everyone. And so when I look at those 13 companies that are most innovative or that are proven to be innovative, with just a few exceptions, they really approach innovation around activating everyone to innovate. Everyone's an innovator as opposed to, hey, you're the innovator and therefore you not being in that group or not. Yeah, many companies, depending on the culture, they kind of sequestered it away. Um, We've got a whole, by the way, Rob Wilcott is, I don't know if I call him an old colleague. He's still a colleague, but uh, oh, yeah, no, former he's guy, definitely yeah. not, he's not too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. So, um, but the whole concept that, that we try to push people to is like, you've got to decide um, as you are growing and building and evaluating things, should you build it yourself? Should you borrow it through a, uh, some type of a partnership or should you buy it? So the whole build by borrow uh, thing tends to move toward, hey, we need to do better uh, you know, partnership development and the, um, and, and it's, it's, it's for some companies, a lot of people think they're super smart and innovative and, and they are, but for many, let's take Google. Um, most of the, most of their best acquisition, I'm sorry, most of their best, uh, innovations, new product, things that actually generate revenue were acquisitions like YouTube yeah. versus, yeah. you know, their people, you know, their Facebook app was not a, a killer. They shut that down. Um, whereas someone like Amazon, he's actually done a really good job at using things like you mentioned, business model canvas and the 10 types of innovation. They're actually using tools to figure out this is where we need to grow. This is what we need to do. We can do most of this ourselves. And they've done it. Yeah. Yep. Then they did yeah. a ton of, they did a ton of acquisitions too, but I just, I just find that mix. I mean, there's, you know, there's strategy and then you're talking more about, yeah, but then you have to let people actually get stuff done, right? Yes, that's right. And what's interesting, the research that led me to this next book was, um, and I, I could go into it in more detail, but basically looking at the most in, the most significant innovations of the last few decades, like the internet, like email, like MRIs, um, when I backtracked, I found that 70% of those innovations were generated not by entrepreneurs, but by employees. Right. But then if you follow the path, who develops it and then who scales it, over 50% of those innovations are then scaled by competitors. So right. what that speaks to is your people are generating valuable ideas, but to your point, we're not enabling them, empowering them, allowing them, training them, whatever that is, to actually act and build those things. They get rejected, they escape the company, and someone else builds them and builds a value from it. 
Yeah, I mean, two points there. One is um, there's, you know, there's like the VP of no or the VP of that'll never work. That still resides in many big companies. I still get it. You still get it. But the interesting point you just made is most of the innovation came from somewhere else or components of it. So if you trace back products like Apple's first uh, iPod and and um, and the iPhone, most of the technology you trace that back to is actually was built by the government. You mentioned the internet, for instance, and then. Mm -hmm. Some of it by mistake, some of it was grabbed by mistake, some of it was very you know, deliberate, but actually bringing together all the components uh, yes. was something they couldn't have done on their own. They just couldn't have done it. So yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your point earlier is you know that some if we think of innovation as just new and different, then it sets us on an improper path. And I think I did a, a workshop many, many, many years ago, and this is not confidential at Microsoft, just a training program. And sure. we had a group of people and just ripped from the headlines kind of case to work on was how should Microsoft respond to what was going to be released soon, the Apple, we, we thought it was going to call it the Slate, it became the iPad. Right. And the overall conclusion was, as your point, this is not new technology. We already have this. It's existed. It's a small uh, market segment that hasn't been growing. It's not going to grow. And so we, when we look at it, is it breaking edge technology? I think we miss the part of what is maybe more valuable innovation is how do I take that idea and combine it with an interesting strategy with other components, make it something that customers will love and they'll adopt and think innovatively about the business around the technology. Right. So and a lot of that innovation ends up focusing on business model shifts, which frightens many companies, right? You've talked about this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, we, have traditionally believed that a company is defined by their business model, right? Yeah. American Express has one business model, which is giving checks that you can spend while you're abroad, and then they have to pivot and change their business model to a credit card model. Most people don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah, traveler's <laughs> checks. Yes. Yeah, traveler's checks. Um, and, don't leave uh, them. Exactly. Um, but now yeah. I think that smart companies, uh, Microsoft, I think is a good example of that is they have an ecosystem of business models that can exist under the same roof, can compete with each other, multiple ways of monetizing, of organizing, of delivering. Um, and so I think we're starting to see greater innovation because one of the barriers that I found was what I call business model camp, uh, conflict or, or va value blockers, what I ended up calling it, was yeah. the idea that, oh, if, it, if it's not going to fit with our current business model, we need to make it fit our business model. And then we end up with a business model that's not appropriate for the idea. Um, but there are ways around that by um, training people to did, you know, use Alex Osterwalder's methodologies and strategizers' methodologies to use the lean canvas to rethink the business model. Right. Um, and even the concept of business model didn't exist really until um, the 1990s when, you know, we had the dot-com boom and everyone was designing new business models. Before that, business model was just something you happened upon and then you were stuck with it. You took it for That's granted, changed. really. Yeah. yeah. And COVID, COVID has shifted that. There's a lot of examples out there of companies that they've been turned upside down and they've said, wait, there is another way to this. Like, yeah, we've been telling you that for 10 years. So it's whether it's acceleration of digital or the elimination of physical, there's just hundreds of things that have shifted to them. And any of your favorites out there that you're seeing happening in the marketplace? Well, I think it's interesting just seeing you know, how people are adapting to working virtually 
and it was something that people would experiment with. But now that we're working virtually, we start having to change how we behave inside our homes, right? Like it used to be that when you were at home, you were a father or a spouse, right. and then you went through the ritual of getting in a car and getting coffee, and then you were a work person. Now you have to be able to take one hat off and put the other on. I don't put up put up a sign. Hey, I'm working now. Daddy can't talk. But you start seeing the social adjustment to allow for virtual working. And I think that we're going to see a lot of companies and people not wanting to go back to the office. Yeah, yeah, they've realized that they're more productive. There's a whole downside trend to that, uh, your reverse side, I should say, really. That's like people. some people need collaboration. They need. Yes, yes. Some people just need time to actually drive between meetings and have some think time in there. They're basically yes. ending. They're ending this podcast, pushing the button, and doing another interview. Yes, so, yes. But you would, you wouldn't do that. You're a pro. You, you know how to get, get your buffer well, I time. Think it's, I think it, we can learn. I think we see people learning to put in new rituals. Like I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just like go for a walk. And um, you know what I do is I go down to my office. I close the door, and the first thing I do is I just read my news feeds, and it just sort of puts me into the mindset of work. I think. Everyone yeah. will find their own, but it's it's a social experiment, and some people are going to, as you say, say, I, I need to go back to collaborating in person. But I think a lot of people are going to say, hey, this actually works if I adjust my life a little bit. Right. The um, and, and collaboration between um, industry groups is really important. I'm one of the founders of Innovation Excellence, now the Disruptor League. You've been on there for years, you know, writing and talking and um, mm -hmm. You've got your own groups. You know, you've got uh, Think Thinkers yep. 50. You've got the um, the OutThinker Strategy Network. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the OutThinker Strategy Network we started. Um, about three years ago, it's a peer group of chief strategy officers of billion-dollar-plus businesses. And when we started out, we said, let's just get a group together, and they can pick a topic. We'll find a thought leader. They can engage and learn from each other. And we were a little worried that, hey, either we're going to need people from the same industry, like all financial services, or we can only have one person per industry because of the competitive uh, you know, um, risk. But what we found is fascinating is that we've got media, we've got technology, we've got banking, we've got retail, we've got apparel, and they all care about blockchain. They all care about millennials. They all care about culture transformation, and they can learn from each other across industries. And so that points to like the power of of um, of cross industry collaboration, and actually, it's been a long trend. And you've been part of this. Is the most substantial innovations over the last, you know, if you track it over 30 years, are increasingly coming from collaboration rather than one organization, uh, um, you know, releasing the innovation. I think it's critical. But what if they don't have a chief strategy officer? Can they still join? Yeah, yeah they can. It's, it's basically the person who leads strategy. So sometimes they're the CTO. Sometimes there's a CMO. The strategy yeah. role is a little bit it's, – it's a, it's a less developed role. Like um, It used to be that your general counsel you just sort of outsourced and legal to – uh, external counsel and managed external counsel, but then companies started building uh, a professional general counsel office. My wife's a general counsel, and that trend I think we're seeing in strategy. It's formalizing now as a more, you know, defined role. And what about Thinkers 50? What's going on there? Yeah, this is really uh, – uh, speaking of COVID and pivoting, this was really an exciting thing for us is that um, I get a lot of my revenue from public speaking, and I was sitting in my office where I'm here with my uh, colleague, and we just had our seventh 
uh, speech canceled and we thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And we just came up with this idea of let's put on a summit, raise money to help COVID charities. All of these great thinkers are available. And we had a relationship with Thinkers 50. Thinkers 50, uh, the economist calls them the Oscars of management thinking. They do a annual or biannual ranking of the 50 most influential thought leaders. And we had gotten to know them because I got on what's called their radar group of emerging thinkers with the hope that maybe I'll make it to the list in a couple of years. And so we reached out to them and said, hey, let's get Renee Mauburn. Let's get Rita McGrath. Let's get Roger Martin. And we just put together this amazing who's who list. We raised $160,000 for charity uh, in these two events. We did 24 hours, 24 speakers. Anyway, it was just something to do. We made no money from it, but it was something to do that meant something that a moment in time opened up for us. And so we've decided to do is collaborate with them and we're going to uh, evolve it into a one year program. Um, you know, I could go into more detail with that, but that that's, that's kind of what I think points to what is the future of education, especially executive education? What's the future of speaking? And COVID gives us an opportunity in a short period of time to experiment while everyone's online and try a new business model. Now, let's dig into that. We're going to have the, the head of uh, exec ed from Kellogg on soon, and it's it's an issue. Um, public speaking is, is an issue. G guys like us aren't out there, and and um, you know, and, and the whole of the ability to actually present and engage is the technologies there. But the business model. Some people are like, oh, geez, I don't know if I should pay for this. Should I pay for this? So, so you just brought up a great example. It's like, hey, we put this thing together. We didn't care about the business model, and now it's leading to other cool things. Mm -hmm. what, what do you th What do you think about the future of education and and um, you know higher ed? Let's just stick with that, of course. Yeah, I, I think I think that they're in real trouble, right? I think that companies are going to be um, uh, business schools or universities are going to be thinking, do I want to bring back? tens of thousands of people to a campus and maybe be the source of an outbreak. We have this installed investment of uh, buildings and stadiums and, you know, and, and, and a campus massive. and yeah. massive. And that the burn rate has got to be massive. And now they're going to try to collect tuition from people who aren't going to get to access those things that they've invested in. Are people going to pay $40,000 for a virtual, you know, experience? And I think that they're, 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 it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big dilemma for them. We, we want to create an alternative that, hasn't invested in those things. And if uh, we can simulate, um, Bharat Anand's a professor at Harvard uh, Business yeah. School. He runs now all of their online and kind of, he wrote a great book, which I'd recommend called The Content Trap. And his one of his insights was when he built Harvard's HBX, which was their online business school kind of uh, offering, he realized that people didn't value hearing from the professors as much as they valued speaking to each other, the peer to peer. Exactly. And so, you know, it takes a different mindset to think about, I call it coordinating the uncoordinated as opposed to creating the product and delivering it. I think it takes a different mindset. Yeah. Rob and I like to say, never leave serendipity up to chance. All right. So right, right, that's why right. I can't, the kin and the twin, which you've been to is, is, yes. so I noticed that too in teaching and you set up breakout rooms and have them go in there. It just, it just doesn't replace that, you know, that connection. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's, I think there's a way to, to kind of get through it. The, the public speaking side is a totally different beast. I mean, that was a yeah. major chunk of your um, livelihood. Yeah. What, uh, what yeah. are you going to do there? 
Well, things are starting. We're booking things for October, November. I think that with you know United Airlines uh, announced recently that you know how 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 that people are not coming back. I think that maybe October, November, December, we're not going to see events. But I think that the there's still a job to be done that events serve, whether that is bringing people together, providing content, yeah. selling things. You know, software companies are still going to want to, you know, sell to their to their user base, right? So oh, yeah. there's going to be something that's going to replace it. Um, yeah. And uh, I think if, if I just focus on the content and delivery, that there will be a need for me in some form yeah, and yeah. for all of us speakers. What are you working on? What's next for you? So um, a whole number of things. I'm really focused on the uh, the um, the the strategy network and building out this partnership with Thinkers Fifty and really doing something interesting in um, online uh, executive peer to peer learning. I'm right. working on a book uh, of called Proximity with Rob Walcott, and he has this really interesting t uh, uh, subject, which is the idea of proximity. Right. Uh, when we did our summits, it was the number one. Uh, mentioned word proximity. The whole idea is you can explain the trajectory of all technology by looking at that it moves the recognition of demand to the delivering of the value ever closer, ultimately to zero. Um, you know, which is what Amazon's really been oriented towards. But let's you know we can track the evolution of any technology and explain it with that. So that's that's what I'm working on. And I've got a whole bunch of other books that I'm trying to not turn to because I want to focus trying, on trying to stay focused one at a time. Yes. Yeah, it's tough. And what's going on in the corporate consulting world? Um, is there more of it going on? Less? I, you know, it's because there's no meetings and everything's virtual. You you don't hear a lot. A lot I, of different types of projects, kind of retooling, rebooting. What should we do? I'm sure there's a lot of reactionary consulting going on. But what about yeah? You know, what I've heard term? from what I've heard from the, the consulting firms that I you know partner with or that I know that they're as busy as they were before, but with shorter projects rather than longer term projects. Yep. As we start reaching clarity. We don't know if that's was supposed to be now, but now maybe it's December. Companies are really going to have to rethink their strategies and rethink their operations, and that there'll be uh, immense need for consulting uh, when that when that when that comes to be. So, you know, from what I've seen, they're 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 doing okay. I, I pivoted away from consulting uh, a couple of years ago to focus on speaking in the peer network. Oh, you did? Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, what? Um... Any other key takeaways from the, uh, the you know the most recent book about what companies should be doing right now? Yeah, I think you know I I I found seven key barriers, and I think the ones that are the, the way they start is I call it intent and need. I think that's the right thing to to focus on is a, building the intent in your employees, the passion, telling them that we're going to empower you to innovate. But the next layer that you have to put in is un them understanding the need. Now, 70% of uh, mid-level managers can't name even two of their company's top strategic priorities. Let me correct that's 55%. Right. So we have these complex plans. We ask people to innovate and they come up with ideas that don't match our strategy. Well, of course not. They don't know our strategy. But I think if you can focus on those first two things, activating the intent and then simplifying the strategy to a simple statement of purpose, then you mm -hmm. can really unlock the potential innovation potential of your people. And what else is important on that list? 
Is it, um, is it, is it seven? Because it spells it's innovate? It's seven, yeah. It spells innovate, yeah, uh -huh. just to make it easy to remember. So got I a just ten did the math need. there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> options, well, there's one N. So options is uh, helping enabling people to come up with fourth options. Value blockers I talked about a little bit before. That's the business model conflict and training people to uh, – you know, remove the business model conflict. Act is what you talk a lot about, you know, taking action rather than writing a plan. Act, Critical. learn, build, agile yep. experimentation. Um, team is allowing this cross-functional team, allowing someone in marketing to collaborate with someone in operations, with someone in manufacturing to do something, kind of allowing that cross-silo. Um, or people that don't work at the company. That's what- Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. More important. Absolutely. Your, your point about strategy is good, but also it's good to get that divergent Here's some other ideas. Well, those aren't part of strategy. Like, I don't care. I'm working on the non-strategy stuff. Exactly. I, I like seeing that kind of stuff in the pipeline from employees. You know, at least they're at least they're out thinking, as you would say. I agree. And 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 going back to the point about it being a dot painting, let them paint yeah. a dot. It might create a new painting, create a new strategy. The strategy will be kind of organically brought up from those ideas. You'll say, hey, this is a good idea. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Actually, that's a theme we have. We have a strategy. And as a leader, as a CEO of, of emerging companies and, and, and back in the earlier days, Fortune 500 um, business units, like I think the job of the leader is to actually not come up with everything, but to actually say, that's an interesting idea. That's a good idea. I'm not even qualified to talk about this one, but to have the, the, the clarity and understanding that we can bring all this stuff to the table. And, but eventually someone's got to make the right calls and pull the right things in or say, we really should be talking to this company in Paraguay because they've got this great technology and you're seeing a lot of that going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Kyan, uh, we really, uh, really want to um, thank you for joining us today. You've got a lot going on. I'm just wondering so much stuff on your plate. What kind of words of wisdom would you give corporate leaders right now that are thinking about going back to the office, but eventually they've got to get back to a growth agenda and that is not what's being focused on right now. So I understand that, but yeah. kind of short-term advice would you give them? Well, I would say it's, it's now's a time where we all need to rethink our strategies. Our strategies uh, are probably mostly irrelevant, but we don't have the clarity yet to be able to build those. So can you be okay with being mid-step, with not knowing what the strategy is in order to uh, be active and have the right assets and capabilities in order to, when clarity comes, you know, be able to turn on the strategy? But it's okay. It's okay if we don't know right now what the strategy will be. Yeah. Good advice. Thanks, Kyan. You've been listening to Kyan Kipnoff, and he is uh, coming to us from Connecticut. Forgot to mention that. Got a beautiful home there, and uh, appreciate you being on. And uh, maybe next time we'll do this in person at one of your uh, one of your summits. It'd be great. I'd love that. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>